The San Diego City Council agrees to settle its Ash Street lawsuit. If the city were to take this case to trial and lose, it would very likely end up paying a lot more. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. To pay for trash or not to pay for trash, the question goes before San Diego voters. And we want to make the promise to folks that if they approve this, that they will get their bins uh, replaced and delivered at no additional cost. A UC San Diego infectious disease specialist helps track down the source of COVID. And the KPBS Influential series profiles San Diego playwright and music artist Mickey Vale. That's ahead on Midday Edition. The San Diego City Council voted Tuesday to cut its losses on the downtown real estate deal that's turned into a fiasco. On a 6-3 to vote, council members approved a proposal by Mayor Todd Gloria to settle a lawsuit related to the leases for the buildings at 101 Ash Street and Civic Center Plaza. The settlement would have the city buy the buildings for $132 million. The vote to settle went against the advice of City Attorney Mara Elliott, who believes the city would prevail in a trial against the owners and facilitators of the deal. But the Ash Street saga is sure to live on as more lawsuits and investigations continue. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thank you. Can you remind us why the leasing of these two properties has been such a disaster for the city? The bigger disaster between the two buildings was definitely 101 Ash Street. So let's start there. Firstly, uh, the city failed to conduct due diligence with an independent appraisal of the property, independent inspections, something any home buyer knows is Real Estate 101. Uh, in 2016, the city signed a lease to own contract with the owners, Sistera, and uh, that had the city uh, paying way more than the building was worth. The city initiated renovations that dislodged asbestos into the air. They had to evacuate hundreds of city employees. Uh, The building has been unoccupied ever since, and for a while the city was actually paying rent on it while it was empty, uh, before it just started to stop paying. And last year we learned that the city's uh, quote-unquote volunteer real estate advisor, the architect of both uh, the Civic Center Plaza and the 101 Ash leases, was paid $9.4 million by the sellers upon closing. Has the city claimed that there was fraud involved in the deal? That word has been thrown around a lot, certainly by observers and in the public, uh, by some people in city government. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to whether all of uh, what transpired meets the legal definition of fraud. Uh, The city does claim uh, that uh, Jason Hughes, the uh, architect of these two lease-to-own deals, broke state ethics laws. And that was the city's kind of golden ticket to try and use that that legal argument uh, in the courts to extract the city from these leases. So if they have this golden ticket, why would the city choose to abandon the lawsuit and pay more than $130 million for the buildings? Ultimately, the question came down to uh, the confidence in the city's ability to win the lawsuit at trial and the city's uh, willingness to tolerate the risk that it could lose. If the city were to take this case to trial and lose, it would very likely end up paying a lot more than what 
than whatever it's going to be paying under this settlement. Here's a short snippet of what Mayor Todd Gloria had to say to the city council yesterday. It would mean paying back rent and penalties, millions of dollars going to reimbursing the legal fees of Sistera and CGA, and continuing with the less favorable financial terms than what this settlement offers. And Maureen, it's pretty clear in addition to those arguments about, you know, the risk of losing the lawsuit and having to pay even more, the city actually wants to own these properties. It still has a very desperate need for office space for many of its employees, uh, many of whom are working in really drab, dilapidated offices with regular breakdowns in plumbing and air conditioning and elevators, etc. The existing city hall is in very poor condition. And so uh, there's this long-term goal also uh, in the background for a central train station downtown. And so this cluster of publicly owned properties in this area could be a really perfect place for it and for replacing some of the the uh, facilities, city-owned facilities downtown that have really gone past their useful life. Now, City Attorney Mara Elliott was strongly opposed to the settlement. What was her argument? Generally speaking, she thought that the terms were just not favorable enough to taxpayers. The city is unable to recover all of the legal costs that that it already put into uh, these lawsuits. Uh, It cannot sue Sistera, the sellers of the building, or its lenders in the future. Uh, It indemnifies them from future lawsuits, even if they uncover new evidence that bolsters the city's case. And so she said, you know, she was confident in the city's legal arguments and that going to trial was worth the risk. In addition to that, she made some comments that made, made it sound like she was really just opposed to the settlement on principle. We also know that this sweetheart deal will not deter others from committing bad acts against the city. We'll send the message that the city buckles at the knees when the going gets tough. What will the city do with these buildings now that they are going to own them? Well, Civic Center Plaza is occupied today, and city staff will keep working there. Uh, They may have to pay for some renovations at some point now that they, or once they officially own the building. It's less clear what's going to happen with 101 Ash. So the city could continue with the renovations and try and make it uh, somewhat uh, occupiable. Um, That'll involve some asbestos remediation, uh, some HVAC uh, repairs, and and likely uh, elevator repairs. It could try to try, try to occupy that building in the short to medium term. It could also leave 101 Ash vacant and uh, ultimately demolish it and seek this wholesale redevelopment of this civic core in downtown. Um, there are more than 18 acres of publicly owned land in this area that are uh, on the verge of some type of redevelopment. So a coordinated redevelopment of all of that property could include, again, a new city hall, a new civic theater, uh, affordable and market rate housing, a transit hub office space for city workers. And uh, so the next thing to kind of watch is that the city council requested that city staff return to the council in October with a sort of status report on what they plan on doing with all of this property. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. My pleasure, Maureen. Joining me now is San Diego City Council President Sean Elo Rivera. And welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, you were one of the six city council members who voted to approve the mayor's Ash Street settlement. Why did you vote in favor of that? Quite simply because I thought it was in the best interest of the city. Uh, Expanding a little bit beyond that, um, you know, I have goals of ensuring that 
San Diego City residents receive excellent service and that we make meaningful progress in addressing our housing prices. And right now, um, we have a civic center that is uh, not equipped to provide our residents with, with excellent service. And we have a large amount of city property sitting here in the civic core that is a terrible use of land by, I'd say, pretty much any objective observer's opinion. And um, settling in the manner that we did provides the city with business certainty that allows us to start to make progress with respect to those those problems and toward those goals that I, that I mentioned. Now, the city council vote on the settlement took about two hours, and that's a relatively short amount of time considering the issue and the fact that the vote had been delayed for a month. Why do you think the vote ran so smoothly this time? So the council had spent enormous amounts of time thinking through this through, providing feedback, um, ensuring that we got what was the best deal possible given the circumstances. Um, and so I think all of that work led to, you know, what you referred to as a relatively smooth me meeting, given how long this has been on the city's plate and you know how much noise surrounds the issue. Let's move on to another topic. You led the effort in securing a place on the November ballot for one of the most unshakable fixtures in San Diego politics. The City Council this week voted to put the People's Ordinance up for a vote. That ordinance has shielded single-family homeowners from trash pickup fees in San Diego for more than 100 years, while most condos and apartment complexes and businesses have been paying for private trash pickup all along. So, Council President, what exactly will voters be asked to decide in voting on this measure? It's a great question because there's a lot of confusion around what voters are being asked uh, this November. The question is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, it, we are attempting to provide all residents in the city of San Diego with the guarantee that their trash will be picked up. We're asking for the permission to recover cost uh, in accordance with state law. Um, for the um, for for picking up that trash and delivering what could be potentially new services such as uh, weekly recycling, bulky item pickup, and we want to make the promise to folks that if they approve this, that they will get their bins uh, replaced and delivered at no additional cost. Um, there is no fee being imposed or proposed based on what's being put on the ballot in November. Uh, we're simply asking the voters to take the handcuffs off the city and allow the city of San Diego to move into the 21st century when it comes to uh, uh, trash recycling and organics collection. Now, it may not immediately impose fees for single family trash pickup, but that's really the aim of the repeal, isn't it? Well, it not only may not impose fees immediately, it will not impose fees immediately. So once the, the aim is really is to provide the city the flexibility to deliver residents with the trash recycling and organics collection that they want. And we're not even able to uh, have a conversation, a meaningful conversation about what those services would look like right now, because we're not able to recover one cent of cost um, from anyone who's shielded by the ordinance that's on the books now. And it should be important to note that because that ordinance is so old, that means that people who are shielded from uh, having to to you know uh, pay a fee include 
owners of short-term vacation rentals who are operating businesses, uh, people who are uh, operating mini dorms in the college area. And those uh, homes could be putting out considerable, considerable amounts of trash on any given weekend. Um, and, um, you know, homes that have added ADUs. So we have a, you know, early 20th century law in the books. We're in the 21st century. And um, the aim is to allow the city to provide 21st century services that may include in the future recovering some cost. Um, but the goal is to enhance services. Now, opponents of this measure have some strong arguments. They claim that homeowners already pay for services like trash pickup through their property taxes, don't they? Well, all San Diego residents um, pay property taxes. Some pay them directly uh, as, as homeowners and renters pay them through the rent that they pay on a monthly basis. And that speaks to one of the other problems with the current ordinance is that, as the city's independent budget analyst put it, this is one of, if not the only city service uh, that is offered to a subsection of city residents. We have a two-tiered system here in the city of San Diego that is unlike any other city in the region or the state. And some have questioned if there's any other city in America that has a two-tiered system like this that requires some people to pay, allows other folks not to. This is a $50 million hit on the general fund on an annual basis. And the and the benefit is only conferred to a, a portion of San Diego residents. Finally, there's also the question of why anyone would vote in favor of a measure that will probably make them pay money for a service they are now getting free. Do you have any polling that gives you the impression that this is is going to make it, that this vote may pass? Yeah, we're really confident that it will. Uh, this has been polled several times over the past year. Uh, the most recent poll had uh, public support at 64%. And there's a couple reasons why. One, everybody wants to know that they're going to, to have high quality service. Two, uh, it, can't, it cannot be forgotten that half of the residents of San Diego are currently paying uh, while others are not. And I think that there is a desire to see an equal playing field here. And the third is that some of the enhanced services that we're talking about, especially the replacement of bins, which right now we are nickel and diming people for and uh, a, a very uh, frustrating process that requires uh, people to go down and pick up the bin themselves. People want their trash picked up. They want to know that the trash bin in front of their house is going to be in good condition and it'll be replaced if it's broken, especially if it's broken by the city. This is a common sense proposal. And I think that residents, when they're asked the question, they see that immediately. They want excellent service. They want the city to be environmentally responsible uh, and they want the city to be financially responsible. And they see that the, the um, reform that we put forward will accomplish all three of those goals. And that's why they've been so supportive. Uh, finally, the broad, broad coalition that is supporting this effort, ranging from the business community uh, to the city workers who are doing the work, to the environmental community, to good governance advocates like the League of Women Voters. Uh, I think that speaks to the broad swath of, of support that we've already uh, put together and the very, very likely success that uh, this, this should have come November. I've been speaking with San Diego City Council President Sean Elo Rivera. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The exact origins of the COVID-19 virus have been a source of intense debate since the beginning of the pandemic. Newly released data, however, supports a widely believed theory that animals sold from a wet market in Wuhan, China, were the most likely source of coronavirus. Joining me now with more is Dr. Joel Wertheim, Associate Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the UCSD School of Medicine, and a co-author on both papers involved in the study. Welcome. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. So what are the major takeaways from this research when it comes to pinning down the origins of this virus? I think there are two uh, main takeaways, one from each paper. From uh, the first paper, it's that epicenter of the emergence of this virus was at the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan. And not only can we narrow it down to that market, but we can also narrow it down to a small part of that market in the Western section where uh, we know that they were selling uh, live mammals capable of being infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2. The Second main takeaway uh, from the other paper is that COVID-19 most likely didn't get started with a single zoonotic jump from a virus from animals to humans, but in fact was started by at least two jumps into humans, which became which successfully transmitted and established themselves uh, in the human population. How exactly was your team able to pinpoint this data? We were able to pinpoint the epicenter of the early pandemic to the market based on the earliest diagnosed cases, which uh, were far more likely to be in very close geographic proximity to the market than anywhere else in Wuhan. And then within the market, there were people who tested positive for COVID-19. And there were also environmental samples that were taken from things like sewer grates or from metal cages or from feather removers that all tended to cluster around the part of the market where they sold uh, live mammals. In order to establish that there were two jumps into humans, we looked at the earliest genome sequences from humans and used a process called the uh, molecular clock analysis, which basically counts the number of mutations that SARS-CoV-2 accumulates over time. And what we observed was that the only way to get the expected number of mutations within each major lineage in SARS-CoV-2 at the beginning of the pandemic was to essentially start them both separately and let them each start evolving and spreading rather than requiring them to come from a single source. And because two separate sources better explains the early viral genomic data in Wuhan and China and actually around the world, we strongly favor a multiple origin scenario over just a single introduction. As you mentioned there, that you know the research points to a wet market in Wuhan, China, as a point of origin. Is there something specifically uh, about these kinds of markets that makes them a likely source of viral outbreak? As we look back to the SARS epidemic from two, starting in 2002, 2003, and 2004, we see that most of those outbreaks were linked to either markets that sold live mammals or uh, restaurants that prepared them. And we see this exact same pattern here uh, with the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Now, what's remarkable about this market 
is that in a city of 11 million people, it's not especially remarkable. We looked at social media check-ins across all of Wuhan uh, from around that time period. And the market is by no means one of the most popular venues in the city. In fact, it's one of the uh, least popular places for social media check-ins. So although it was a busy market, it's not the place where you would expect some massive super spreading event like a hospital or a theater or a shopping mall. I mean, how rare is this kind of transfer of disease from animals to humans? Is this something that happens often or is it more of a rare occurrence? I do acknowledge that I've said that uh, a rare event like a pandemic that then spread uh, across the world and has killed millions uh, actually started uh, multiple times, which seems counterintuitive. But what's important to realize here is that the rarity is a virus capable of infecting and killing humans, getting into close proximity to humans. First, it has to evolve in bats, then it has to make its way into an intermediate host, and then it has to get into humans. But once you have a virus capable of human-to-human transmission in close proximity to humans, multiple jumps would actually be uh, expected. And in fact, we see that with the first SARS coronavirus, we see that with the MERS coronavirus, and we've even seen it in rare coronaviruses uh, in Haiti, that anytime you have a virus capable of human-to-human transmission in close proximity to humans, it usually jumps in more than once. So in fact, I think what would be more expected is if this virus had only entered the human population a single time. You know, the findings in this data runs counter to another popular theory that points to a lab leak as the origin of the virus. Would you say that your findings disprove that theory? I don't like to use the word prove or disprove. But what I can tell you is that you have to come up with an unbelievably convoluted conspiracy theory to make the lab leak fit all of the data surrounding the market and the multiple introductions. It's just far, far, far more consistent with a natural zoonotic origin, which is how these viruses tend to get started. So in my mind, I don't give the lab leak any credence anymore. What lessons do you think health officials can take away from your research? Early and constant surveillance of pathogens, both spreading in humans and those that are in close proximity to humans and animals is key. What our findings tell us is that the Chinese actually figured out that there was a novel coronavirus circulating in Wuhan very quickly. They managed to uh, realize that some of these earliest cases in December couldn't be explained. And the public health response there was actually pretty quick. Unfortunately, it wasn't quick enough to stop the pandemic, but they knew what they had in December. And that's a lot faster than we've ever seen with any other novel pathogen. I've been speaking with Joel Wertheim, an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. My pleasure. There's a new home and even more hope for teenagers who find themselves locked up in the county's juvenile detention system thanks to a new youth transition campus. This summer, young people in custody are learning more than just life's hard lessons. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez takes us inside. I first got locked up when I was 14 
And then I was in there on my 15th birthday. Oceanara Follow is now 18 years old, with a past that includes time in San Diego County's old juvenile hall. I was hanging out with people that were in here or were out there doing bad stuff, so I had to completely cut everyone off because if you hang around the barbershop too long, you're going to get a haircut. Ocean, as she prefers to be called, did not get a haircut. She did get in the middle of gang fights and a life of illegal drugs. But a few stays in the county's custody turned her life around. She just graduated from an online education program that will allow her to start classes at Grossmont College in August. She also describes herself as a side hobby artist whose latest painting shows the mythical Persian Huma bird in brilliant pastel colors. It never touches the ground. It just like soars high in the sky and it like brings hope to and gifts to people in like despair. Ocean's painting hangs in the lobby of the county probation department's brand new multi-million dollar youth transition campus in Kearney Mesa. The YTC replaces facilities that look more like a prison and have now been demolished. I, I saw kids being released uh, two weeks later, rearrested, back in my class. Alex Long has been a teacher in San Diego's juvenile court schools for 25 years. Most of that time, he taught science and math. But five years ago, the county dedicated much more money to career and technical education. That's when he started teaching woodshop, six students at a time, for two hours, five days a week, building furniture, picture frames, and anything they could dream of to construct from wood. The majority of the time, it is the first time that a student has made something with their hands. The new youth transition campus has a wood shop that is more than twice the size it was in the old building. Students sell their furniture online, and the money raised is used to buy more supplies and tools for the next group of woodshop students. Offenders become contenders for real-life jobs and much better futures, according to Long, who has a sign hanging on his classroom wall that says, we are the carpenters of our destiny. Now, when they're released from here and they've taken my class, they can get a, an entry-level job that can then actually, I believe, you know, affect their lives for good as they move forward. And they, they have options. So our students are, you know, underwater and they're drowning and they need support. Ellen Della Cruz is helping teens in trouble through reading at the new YTC. She's been a teacher for county court schools since 1997. They want to learn how to read big words. They want to be able to spell big words. Della Cruz says one third of the 50 teenage students she teaches read below a fifth grade level. But they are eager to get their hands on as many books as they can. The new campus has an expanded library with titles that include topics from fantasy to feelings about first loves. There's even a summer reading contest underway right now. We're paying attention. Sometimes no one's paid attention to how, you know, how they're doing academically and what their achievement is. So that's what I want to do. I want to like help kids, get them off the streets, get them off drugs and hopefully save their life. Ocean Follow has gone from student inside to mentor outside, admiring her painting in the YTC lobby. And how does it feel to see your name on a painting? Super cool. Like, super cool. Makes me really happy. Happiness she hopes to someday turn into a career as a judge in the juvenile justice system. M.G. Perez, KPBS News.
Maya Gabera is a two-time Guinness World Record holder for big wave surfing and seven-time World Surf League Big Wave Award winner. She's been working on something much different than breaking records as one of the few women taking on the waves at her level. She's been writing books. Her recent book, Maya and the Beast, is a beautifully illustrated story of empowerment and conquering fear. And Maya, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so so what inspired you to become a writer? Oh, my God. Um, that's a, a long answer. I mean, the idea of the book itself came uh, during the pandemic <laughs> <laughs> when I was um, just with my dogs walking in the forest for way too many hours a day uh, because we couldn't do anything. We couldn't surf here for a while. We couldn't travel. So I had the idea of doing a bunch of things and a children's book was one of them. And I started working on it, not realizing how much more difficult <laughs> it was than, you know, just the idea itself. But um, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, it took uh, two years. So it's uh, exciting to have it out there. I mean, you know, Maya and the Beast follows a young asthmatic girl who dreams of surfing big waves. What life experiences as a surfer did you pull from to write her story? I think all of them. I think that's the, the that's the challenge uh, of writing for kids, and that's what I had to really um, understand. You know how to put all the emotions that that I had in my life and the lessons in a simplified version to be able to connect with children. I mean, in 2020, you rode the biggest wave surfed by anyone, a first for women in professional surfing. Why is this such a passion for you? Oh, I love big wave surfing. Um, I love surfing uh, as a sport. I just, I fell in love with it when I was around 13 and I never looked back. It's it, being in the ocean and riding waves. And um, for me, it's just, it's my passion in life. And big waves is just the, there was an extra challenge there for me. I think maybe because it wasn't like completely natural. I had asthma and I was I didn't grow up in the ocean from little, so I, I was very intimidated by big waves. So there was a, a whole thing there that I wanted to like challenge myself towards that direction. And, and that's how I uh, pursued professional surfing. So I went to that niche um, that I like very much, the intensity, the, the, the energy of those big waves and training for them. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a good life. Mm. And, and speaking of challenges, what challenges do you face as a woman breaking records in a male-dominated sport? Oh, many. <laughs> uh, over the years, I think the challenges always keep changing. Um, but I think in the sport and the water, it's about like not having the same physical sometimes abilities and then having to compensate. And in life, it's about learning how to, to deal with men and work with men. I think that that is, has been one of the big lessons of my career, you know, how to collaborate in a very male uh, environment and make it work. Um, and, and that has been a big lesson. But it's full of challenges. It's full of um, having to break barriers and having to be the first and having to um, establish certain things that aren't established yet. So it's a, it's a fight on the way. Um, the record itself was a fight. It was the first, first time a woman, uh, had a, a world record in the Guinness book and big wave surfing. So it was a change that had to be made. 
You know, both writing and surfing really take an enormous amount of focus. So what do you find more challenging of the two and why? Oh, you know, it's funny, even though, I mean, I'm not a writer. I, I wrote those those books from my experience and something that I wanted to share, right? I don't see myself as like a writer. I'm a surfer. And I think that maybe that um, brings a lot of uh, expectations from me. So I always think surfing is, is harder because I expect, you know, to be at the highest level. And that demands uh, an enormous amount of dedication and um so I'll always stick to surf and also, you know, surfing, you know, I can die. <laughs> so at least writing, I'm like safe. You wrote Maya and the Beast for a young audience. Um, what do you hope they take away from this story? I hope they can relate, first of all, if they have asthma or if they're afraid or if they feel, you know, uh, outside of, of the mold of what they want to do, but they still want to do that. Um, I think they, I, I hope they, they can see themselves there and then they can, through the story, build courage to, to keep going and keep finding themselves and keep believing in themselves until the end. And, and there's never an end. <laughs> so I hope they, they, they understand that, that they just got to have courage and go for what they really want. I've been speaking with Maya Gabera, Guinness World Record holder for big wave surfing and author. And Maya will be in San Diego next week for a Warwick's book event at the La Jolla Ryford Library. That's on Friday, August 5th at 4.30 p.m. For more information about that event, you can find it on our website, kpbs.org. And Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Mickey Vale is a San Diego-based hip-hop artist, playwright, teaching artist, and the co-founder of Soul Kiss Theater. She's also part of the cast and creative team for the Old Globe's forthcoming production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. As part of KPBS's Influential series, we asked Mickey Vale to make us a playlist of songs that have influenced her career as an artist. Here are the tracks she chose in her own words. Music from my childhood is critical because, for one thing, we weren't able to just listen to it anytime we wanted, unless you, you know, bought the record. But as a kid, I wasn't, I didn't have money. I wasn't going and buying records. So I, I listened to what my parents played and I listened to what was on the radio. And every time it would play, it was just so exciting to get to hear it. It was just like, oh, this is it. I get to hear it again. It's so exciting. So just for it not being immediately accessible makes the music even more precious. Many Ripperton's Inside My Love. I actually don't remember when I first heard it. I just feel like Many Ripperton's music was just always a part of my life, <laughs> always a part of my childhood. And that particular song, it just moved me because it, it sounds ethereal, the way the beat comes in and the way her voice is just so soft. So it always stuck with me.
Bahamadia's Three the Hard Way was just one of the first times I heard three women on a track just barring out, just all raps, no chorus or anything. And Bahamadia's raps on there are just incredible to me. Like it's just rap. You know, it's not about anything in particular. It's just bars on on top of bars. And that style of creating a song really stood out to me. Salutes to action, be the latest century for Illidale Colonies to get the cream like cherry jubilee My seeds put you at ease like methamphetamines Or like Tony Stark's fantasies about his wallabies Do fit in, yeah, I mean, biggies be coming through Ghetto magic plus the bullies back at what? Man, I'm the best for I and I provide the greatest natural Purest life that exit from the Gentile Style international, like direct connects from internet Verbal text blossom like Geopex Perfect with the mic devices Bahamad be the nicest Bringing this rap thing to the light like Osiris for the nine pound etc. Peace the gang star and my in Some of the first rhymes I actually wrote, because before that I would rap, but it would mostly be freestyle just off the top. So when I finally sat down and started actually writing rhymes, I wrote them to that beat because I loved that beat so much. It was like I was the fourth person on that song in my head. Martel couldn't tell you how we do it if you got the chance to even do the battle dance with the cannon brand. She's slamming more than Larry Nance and plus a semi to give you more like Demi. I do it easy. Leave the hard away depending as I display skills for what this worth. Sent to the surf to put the curse of whack seeds on my turf. This is the end like all my I first heard Marvin Gaye got to give it up probably at my grandmother's house. In my family, there was always music playing. My dad played the drums. My mom was always singing. And there was just always music playing, soul music. And, you know, the family would get together and these songs would be playing. And Marvin Gaye was, was always playing. Got to give it up. It kind of represents my childhood. And I remember just hearing that and you can hear people partying in the background. And I was a kid at the time, but I just, I wanted to be at that party. It just sounded so fun. It sounds free. It sounds happy. It sounds so black and so beautiful and soulful. And it just made me want to create black, beautiful, heartfelt music. Africa also transported me. I used to just play that on repeat. It's a, another one that just sounds so ethereal. And, you know, he says, 
Africa is my descent here. I'm far from home. And I, you know, that's how my spirit feels like that's the whole song just speaks to my spirit. And then when I learned that it was about his child and that just gave it another level of beauty to me. And it sounds like almost like a lullaby, which I thought was so creative. It sounds roots. It just sounds like this sound that that's coming from the earth. And I like those ethereal sounds. So just knowing that it's okay to have this soft, beautiful sounds. Rufus and Shaka Khan, Tell Me Something Good. It was one of those songs I heard growing up during my childhood. And I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So funk music was everywhere when I was a kid. That was what was played in my home. Me and my mom would clean on every Saturday and we'd get up and listen to soul music and funk. So it, it just, I love creating soulful music because I grew up on soul music. Anytime I heard it, it just, it struck me. I just, the way that the bass line comes in, it's just so funky. And Chaka Khan, the way she's singing on it, and that, that hook, tell me something good. It's just so funky. And that one definitely had a, a huge impact on me. I think there are connections to music that influenced me growing up to this work that I'm doing in the Shakespeare Old Globe production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm also creating original music for the production. And that it's just been fun. It's been definitely something like I've never done before, a challenge that I've never done before. It's very fast paced. I'm doing some of the scene transitions. I'll be rapping during those transitions. So here's an example of one of them. Things in the palace are not going well. Will love prevail? Well, time will only tell. This crew of players sounds a little hood. Let's see what's happening in the magic wood. Thinking about what the work I'm doing with the Old Globe and the Midsummer Nights 
dream production. There are Afro-future themes in the play, and those African sounds, like the song D'Angelo, Africa, there's those drums in there, those African drums, and I'm using the same type of drums in the music that I'm creating for this production. So those rhythms have stayed with me. But those rhythms come from, you know, they were with me before I heard that song or any music, you know, those come from my spirit, those come from my ancestor spirit. So those those rhythms are, are going to be within me forever. And they'll always come up in some way in the work that I do. Is there something on your mind that I should know? You know, relationships are optional. I ain't holding you here. You are not a hostage, yo. Okay, okay. let me chill out. If there's something you want to say, go ahead and spit it out. That track was Worth It by Mickey Vale from her 2013 album, The Good, The Bad, and The Lovely. Again, she shared five tracks with us that influenced her work, and you can find that playlist of Mickey's selections on our website, kpbs.org. I'm perfect, I'm worth it, you need me, believe me, you're scratching the surface, look deeply, don't leave me. What you mean the passion's gone? What you mean it's been dragging on for too long? What you mean it no longer feels right and you tired of fussing and fighting and it's time to move on? You said you love me, man. This is how you show it? Oh, yes, this is about our love and you know it. How could you just throw it away like it was worthless? Baby, I'm perfect and I'm worth it and I know my as well. I don't deserve this. Okay, maybe I do. Maybe I called you out your name and disrespected you a time or two. Maybe I pushed you away by accusing you of cheating like every other day. And I swore that you was flirting. You made me mad. I ran your name through the dirt and ignored when you was hurting. Through the dirt, my bad. But I know one thing's for certain. I gave you everything. How could you promise me a wedding ring and pull some fish like this? I'd have slowed my roll and kept feelings under control if I'd have known you was a flight risk. Oh, now you standing looking sad, making your lip quiver. Here, here's a tissue. Cry me a river. Fine, bye. Pack your shit. You want to play? Well, three strikes, baby. You done struck out. <laughs> you think I'm crazy? Well, I'm going to make you a believer. Go ahead and take the dog, too. I don't need that shit, either. I'm perfect. I'm worth it. You need me. But leave me. You're scratching the surface. Look deeply. See me. I'm perfect. I'm worth it. You need me. But leave me. You're scratching the surface. Look deeply. Don't leave me, leave me.